Hello and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the global COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective with more than 45 years of experience investigating and researching infectious disease outbreaks. His 2017 book, Deadliest Enemy, warned of a scenario very similar to what we are experiencing now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Each episode of the podcast, Dr. Osterholm will be discussing the latest COVID-19 news, data, guidance, and perspective. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CityRep News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Mike, what is your assessment of the current trajectory of the COVID-19 pandemic, starting with the U.S., where as of Monday, there are more than 160,000 cases and nearly 3,000 deaths? Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again. Uh, The assessment of the current trajectory of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, can be defined in one word, dynamic. Um, We had uh, projected that once it, in a sense, made landfall in the United States, that it would take uh, several weeks, if not uh, a month, of transmission in certain um, locations, most notably metropolitan areas, with uh, substantial international travel to introduce the virus into that population and then quietly, if for lack of a better term, spread within that community. This is exactly what happened in Wuhan between what is it's likely a jump from an animal to a human in mid-November of last year and then the recognition of cases in the end of December. Remember that we talk about a generation time or the time from one's being exposed to the virus to becoming infected, becoming potentially clinically ill and spreading the virus of about five days. And that um, during that time, on average, an individual will transmit to two to 2.5 individuals. Think about that. One patient uh, infected, two, five days later, four, five days later, uh, eight, five days later, 16, et cetera. And it does take several months. Uh, before you really start to build up the big numbers. But once you get to uh, that uh, uh, 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000 to 8,000, you see substantial growth. And so what happened in the United States was just that. Uh, We obviously had virus circulating in places like Seattle, New York, and now we're realizing in other cities around uh, North America, including uh, Boston, uh, Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, even in rural uh, Georgia, uh, New Orleans, which is a major uh, hotspot today, and of course the West Coast, besides Seattle, including LA and San Francisco. So you can see it's w- spread widely throughout uh, uh, North America. The question I think that we have to ask ourselves: Where is it going to go from here? And uh, our group uh, has been pretty much on the mark in terms of predicting its early days, um, as I mentioned last week. Uh, On January 20th, we uh, put out a document indicating that this was going to be a global pandemic um, and that we needed to get ready for it as such. Uh, On February 3rd, we said that it would take approximately four to five weeks before there would be sufficient transmission activity in most areas around the world before we would actually see it raise its ugly head. And then when it did, it would do it quickly and uh, with some very expansive transmission, which it did. Um, We also predicted at that same time that when it did uh, become uh, seen in any one country, that there would likely be these hotspots, as I just mentioned, and it's done that. I think, where does it go from here? None of us know. Uh, 
uh, in asking what is the trajectory of the pandemic, I can say that um, everything that this virus represents is what you might expect to see an influenza virus doing, meaning that it will spread wide and far until it runs out of susceptible people um, or there's an intervention like a vaccine. If, in fact, that's the case here, uh, I think in the first wave of activity, and I hate to use that term because I don't want people to think I'm thinking of it as a classic tsunami wave, but in these early collective cases across all these areas in the, in the United States, um, we may have 20% at most of the people infected. Um, in that regard, that means that if we are thinking about 60 or more percent, we still have a lot of people yet to get infected that will be occurring over the weeks to months ahead. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, I am uh, very skeptical about the uh, ability to say it will or won't have a seasonal uh, distribution, meaning that people think of this like influenza. Uh, and in fact, I just remind people that although uh, a number of the people on the television screens are saying that or they're writing that in newspaper articles, uh, they really have no data to justify that. If you look at coronaviruses in general, Yes, the cold virus uh, that certain coronaviruses cause can be more cyclic. But if you look at SARS and MERS, there's no evidence of that. SARS, which emerged outside of the Guangdong province in February of 2003, really took until June of 2003 to bring under control just because we didn't understand at first that these people were most highly infectious on the fifth or sixth day after onset of illness. Once we understood that, we were able to get patients isolated in such a way that they didn't transmit to others. We were able to identify the animal reservoir in the markets of the Guangdong province, uh, namely palm civets, and eliminate them out of the market so humans didn't continue to get pinged. And in addition, uh, then made sure any contacts of cases were, were followed up in a timely way. So when cases ended in uh, June of 2006, it really had nothing to do with the season. It had to do with just it took us that long to get it done. Had the first emergence been in October, I'm convinced that we would have cleaned this up, uh, the SARS up uh, in March. Um, when you look at MERS, which uh, has as its animal reservoir uh, camels, which on the Arabian Peninsula are very valuable animals, you're not just going to put down 1.7 million camels that reside on the Arabian Peninsula. And so there are people get, getting pinged all the time with this virus. And it's notable, there's really very little seasonality. Uh, so that, uh, I mean, I've been there when it was 110 degrees with uh, uh, a MERS transmission occurring just fine, thank you, and it wasn't at all impacted by that temperature. So in that regard, we don't have a model that supports seasonality. If you look at the influenza model, uh, you know, people naturally refer back to the wintertime transmission in the respective northern and southern hemispheres, and I understand why, but they forget that we have widespread transmission and all around the year in the uh, tropical areas of the country. It doesn't ever stop transmitting there. If you look at the last 10 influenza pandemics that have occurred over the 250 plus years, uh, two started in the winter, three started in the spring, two started in the summer, and three started in the fall. In every one of them, the uh, a big wave of cases, usually a second wave, occurred about six months after the introduction of the virus, which is exactly what happened in 2009 with H1N1. Our biggest peak in North America was mid-September to mid-October, which was hardly winter time. So if you take all this combined, I don't know where it's going to go next. I know it's going to keep going. And we're in this for a, a marathon, not for a sprint. And one of the things I, I just want to add, uh, because I see these numbers 
becoming just numbers. It reminds me far too much of the stock market, et cetera. Um, these are people. These are loved ones. These are family members. These are colleagues. These are, are people who are dear friends. And these numbers are going to grow so much more. You know, I, I almost hate to use weekly numbers because they are going to get much larger than they are now. And one day we'll actually look back and say, wow, I wish it was back like it was the end of March. And that's hard to imagine for anyone who right now is in a place like New York or Seattle or New Orleans, uh, Detroit, Chicago. Um, that's hard to believe. So I think right now what we're looking at is an ongoing outbreak. Uh, what happens with uh, the issues around mitigation, meaning do we suppress this? Uh, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. That surely will change the, the shape of the curve. It'll change what happens in terms of number of cases in our healthcare systems. But uh, uh, right now, the pandemic's doing very well. I just want to add one little piece to say that, and, and that's what's playing out around the world. Right now, the cases in Europe appear largely to be potentially leveling off after some very hot spots in various parts of, of Europe. Um, it's still yet to be seen if that's going to be the case. Uh, the EU has been very, very severely impacted also. And uh, so we'll see uh, what's happening uh, there in the next few weeks ahead. Mike, you published an op-ed in the New York Times on Saturday highlighting the fact that there is no national plan right now for responding to the pandemic. Can you elaborate on your concerns about the U.S. response and, and what you believe we must do? Well, as I just mentioned, um, we really have a set of scenarios before us that to some degree we can pick and choose how we're going to live out those scenarios. Now, the virus is still in control. We can't forget that. And our job is going to be riding out this, like riding out a bad storm. You know, we're not in control in a storm, but we can ride it out as safely as possible and limit uh, those who are hurt or damaged is done. Um, in this regard, uh, if you look at the possibility of quote unquote locking down society, uh, you know, several of the models, the group from Imperial College in England and the group from Harvard uh, have given us, you know, some really good um, uh, kind of roadmaps to look at. And they both have concluded that if we can suppress uh, this virus activity by an almost a Wuhan China-like lockdown for 15 or more months till we get a vaccine, we can avoid uh, a number of these severe illnesses. Or if that's not acceptable, and I think most people would agree that we just can't lock down our society. And it's not just about dollars and cents. I said this in the op-ed piece. This is not about saving lives versus dollars and cents. This is about existing. We need food. We need fire and police. I've seen no one yet that figured out how to pick up garbage with remote location uh, work. Um, you know, if you live in a metropolitan area, having an elevator operator, elevator maintenance person is important. If you live in the 45th floor and your elevator goes out, we need electricity. We need pharmacy goods. I can go through a laundry list of people who become important. And we have to understand how we let them continue to do their jobs with, while at the same time minimizing the number of, of infections that occur? Or if they do occur, do they occur in an age group that is uh, more, less likely to have severe disease? And, and I might add a caveat on that because um, as we have been uh, discussing from our center for some time, if you look at the cases in New York to date, uh, and I'm talking New York City specifically, 42% of all the cases are between 18 and 44 years of age, and only 17% are 65 years of age and older. 
there surely is a, a larger number of cases in that younger age group than was seen in China. Now, even in the severe illness uh, side of things, we have a number of individuals in that younger age group that are experiencing severe illness and requiring ICU care. Um, interestingly enough, the initial reports out of New York indicate that there's another comorbidity risk factor that's coming to play that we didn't see in China as much, and that's obesity. 45% of U.S. citizens over the age of 50, both men and women, are, are considered moderately severely obese. And we know from influenza-like illness and the uh, follow-up of seriously ill patients with that, that obesity is an underlying risk factor for developing acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, uh, and having a very bad outcome. We worried about that here because in China, uh, uh, obesity is a problem, but primarily in those under age 30, with almost no obesity in those over age 55. And we never saw that comorbidity risk factor come to play. So as we, we move forward here in a, a, a national plan, we have to figure out, okay, are we going to suppress this illness or not? If we're not, how are we going to then uh, allow it to occur in our communities, if such a word is possible, allow it, um, and, and actually make it so that we minimize its impact. And well, one of the thoughts was that for those who are younger, they actually get back into the workforce more. They do become infected. And with uh, hopefully uh, uh, changes in what we have right now for lab testing, and I'll talk about that in a moment, uh, we can actually even determine, do you have antibody? As I mentioned in last week's podcast, good news emerged in one study in China where we found that uh, uh, when uh, macaques, a type of monkey, were infected with this virus and then follow-up occurred uh, weeks later and they were re-challenged with that virus, none of them got reinfected, very much supporting the possibility of uh, some kind of intermediate to long-term protection that would occur. So um, in that sense, we, uh, a middle ground might very well be, and I, I often refer to this as uh, threading the needle with the rope, uh, how do we craft a way that we open up society to the extent that, that we can without causing this tidal wave of cases to continue to occur, and at the same time making sure that we don't have that happen. I was on a TV uh, talk show uh, last week in which uh, Lieutenant Governor of one of the southern states made the bold claim that, well, maybe it's time for the older people to step aside and, and let the younger people get on with it and more or less uh, just to take a bullet. And I found that to be uh, very disappointing, uh, upsetting, because number one, I don't think that that should be how we look at people uh, who are older. Um, but more importantly, uh, it it's also misses the entire risk that we're putting our healthcare workers at. Today, I think, the, without a doubt, the unsung heroes, the true heroes in our society today are these healthcare workers who are going in with little to no armament to protect themselves and no bullets to fire back at this virus. Uh, we know that we have terribly, terribly inadequate uh, levels of uh, personal protective equipment, particularly N95 respirators. Uh, we know that they're not going to have uh, sufficient equipment as time goes on. We know that if you overload the healthcare systems, it makes it even more likely that, that the kind of, of accidents or mistakes occur where someone might accidentally be exposed. We're asking people to work 12 to 14 hour shifts day after day after day. And, and, and so I think that 
we have to do what we can to protect healthcare workers in our healthcare systems. And not just for COVID-19 uh, patients, but as we overrun these healthcare facilities, like we're seeing right now in places like New York, we compromise the care of people who are not COVID patients, but who have heart attacks, who uh, have uh, automobile accidents, who have uh, 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 strokes. I can go down the laundry list of, of what I would call the collateral damage cases that will suffer if we don't have a plan. So my plan, my plan is, first of all, get everybody together. And I said this in the article that we need a Manhattan-like project, uh, but one done in several days where we bring together public health experts, uh, medical ethicists, uh, healthcare delivery experts, uh, business, et cetera. And we get them all in a room and we say, okay, what's the plan here? And where do we go? Uh, obviously, that's not happened yet, and I don't know if it will, but uh, I feel a bit rudderless. Over the course of the last two days, two other uh, individuals or groups have come out with a plan. Uh, uh, Zeke Emanuel, uh, well-known to many of us in this country uh, uh, from his work at the NIH, now at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, pro proposed his own plan in an op-ed piece in the New York Times, uh, really counting on how to first stop this epidemic from doing the damage it's doing and then getting into more of the long-term mitigation. Uh, you know, I'm a, a friend of Zeke's. I uh, have great admiration for him, but I think he missed the mark on this one uh, because as we have so well demonstrated recently, testing is a huge problem and it's going to get a lot worse. Everybody's talking about more testing, more testing, more testing when we're running out of reagents. Uh, never before has the world had such a need for the kind of reagent materials for doing all this testing all at the same time. All these, you know, 178 countries plus the ones yet to be, have it found are testing and they want to do more testing. And we never understood that developing a garden hose like a spigot uh, situation for reagent was going to one day go well beyond a fire hose into almost a water tunnel need. And so right now, I think we're going to see a, a decrease in testing generally, even with the new test platforms coming out. Companies are having a challenge coming up with the reagents for these tests. In our own state of Minnesota, we have a major challenge right now with great limitations, even with the commercial laboratory side supporting it. So I, I think one of the things is don't plan on that. The second thing was, well, just go get more N95s. Isn't going to happen. Um, and even with all of this, what I call almost political theater around the Defense Production Act, where basically while you're hearing companies volunteering to come forward to make more N95 respirators, this can't be done simply. This takes very specialized machinery that uh, does very specialized assembly uh, and has component parts that are unique to this, that just because you can make jet engines doesn't mean you can make N95s overnight. We don't need these necessarily a year, two years, three years from now. We'll need some. But what we need right now is what we need. And we're far, far short of that. And so when I hear people talking about, you know, adding on uh, 10 or 15 or 30% production on what was basically 25 or 35 million units, uh, that's nothing if what you need is 450 to 500 million of those units. And that's the problem right now. So we're going to see major shortages in 95s. Um, as I noted in my op-ed piece, just think about this for one moment. 3M, which has publicly disclosed its uh, manufacturing capacity in North America, 35 million in 95s a month. 
And think about just one hospital, one hospital in New York last month before COVID really took off, went through 2 million in 95 respirators. Now, that's just one hospital. So imagine on a nationwide basis when the largest producer of N95s is only making 35 million a month. We've got to have a plan. How are we going to best protect healthcare workers when we don't have a way to protect them? And again, Zeke's uh, uh, re, uh, proposal didn't count on that. Finally, everybody thinks that there are these thousands and thousands and thousands and maybe a few more thousand public health workers that are all just sitting around day in and day out just waiting for a new job to go out and do. And all this contact tracing issue, I think, is, you know, it has a, a time and a place early in the uh, first cases showing up in a given area. But uh, I don't think it has it beyond that now. And we and we couldn't do it. We couldn't test our way and do contact tracing our way out of this outbreak. And let me just be clear in a couple of things. First of all, uh, we have to be very cautious about interpreting the Chinese and uh, other Asian country data. Um, they did a remarkable job in China of suppressing this infection with what almost were draconian uh, measures to limit any kind of human movement. Um, having said that, Today, they have just closed their theaters in China again. Um, they are seeing uh, the potential for a resurgence of this virus as they release the population back into the workforce and with the ongoing imports of cases, now not China to the world, but the world to China. And, uh, you know, they don't have it under control, as w some people would lead you to believe. The same is true in Singapore, Hong Kong, in uh, Korea. Uh, I have close relationships in each of these countries, talk to these people frequently. And today, uh, many more cases in Singapore were found that are community-wide transmission that were imported. And so these countries, too, don't have a, uh, what I would call made the case for how to stop it. They clearly made the case for suppressing it. So if you come back to our country then and think about that, you know, we very well may be able to suppress it for some time, but we're not going to stop it in that regard. And so when people say we're going to get all these healthcare or public health workers to go out into the field and identify uh, these cases and, and, and uh, somehow isolate them, it's just not practical. They haven't done uh, frontline public health work. What I would do with these public health workers and what they can do very, very well is keep from having this outbreak get enhanced instead of make sure we don't throw gasoline on the fire. One of the areas I would put a lot of efforts right now is trying to bubble our congregate home locations, such as long-term care, uh, those facilities for the mentally handicapped or for, for rehabilitation areas where we know we can get major transmission. We have long-term care facilities right here in Minnesota that don't have, doesn't have one N95 in-house, not one. And if we could keep those people from getting infection and then not having to get into the hospital setting, which is exactly what happened in Seattle, uh, that's going to be a huge challenge. But our, health, our public health teams could do a lot to help that. Helping out in the hospitals when there are outbreaks, we need to understand if healthcare workers start going down uh, in any meaningful numbers, why is that happening? Well, you need a third party with investigative expertise to come in and find out what's going on to save those healthcare workers. There are many things like that that we can do. And finally, in the absence of testing, public health is in the position to do what I call syndromic surveillance, a very important tool. 
This is actually doing surveillance for disease-like conditions to understand what's happening in your community. It turns out that one of the most notable syndromic surveillance systems we have is actually for uh, influenza-like illness. We have uh, sentinel clinics all through the United States where every week we track how many illnesses that they see that week that were influenza-like illnesses and not influenza. And it turned out that if you looked at the New York data, that data showed a major uptick in activity there before the first patients were test positive. We see it here in Minnesota. By having those kind of data and analyze them every day, you know you can, when that peak just starts to start to come up, you can really, really get the message out to your populations. Now's the time to put the pedal to the metal. Okay, it's starting. Don't let this happen. You really do need to do everything you can to stop this transmission. And so I think that there's a lot public health can do, but it's not going to be doing all this contact tracing. I just don't think that that's at all practical. And so um, the plan that Scott Gottlieb and colleagues did was very similar to Zeke's. It was done in phases uh, where this first phase is, you know, basically get all the uh, equipment you need, including ventilators, which also is not going to happen. Uh, and uh, for all the same reasons I mentioned the N95s. Um, and, and I think that we still need that, uh, what I call aspirational approach. I give them great credit for putting that out there on the table, but we needed also a practical plan. And as I've said before uh, uh, on this podcast, you know, we're in a situation right now where we're really following up on what a former defense secretary once said, when you go to war, you don't get to go with what you want. You got to have to go to war with what you have. And this is what we have. And we need realistic plans and we don't have them right now. We can't continue to go from press conference to press conference, from tweet to tweet for our plans. And I never felt more strongly about that uh, than I do right now. And we will get through this if we have those plans. If we don't, I will still get through it, but it's going to be a lot more painful. Mike, as you noted, uh, we're seeing a lot of difficulties right now in the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, and I, I think one of the elements of this pandemic that's probably been shocking to many Americans is the dire situation we're seeing in some U.S. hospitals. First in New York, uh, now and increasingly in other parts of the country, uh, New Orleans, Detroit, Chicago. Uh, you hear the term war zone frequently being used. What can we do to improve the situation right now? Well, I think the very first thing we can do is understand that the people who are in, the, in these war zones, as I said earlier, are real heroes. We owe them everything we can do to support them, how we can support their families, how we can support them during this time, and we can do everything we can to give them as much protection as possible. For example, hospitals have to start looking at alternative ways to provide care, um, meaning that if I have patients who are in 15 different private rooms and every time I doff and don my equipment going in and out of that room, I use it up then that's obviously a real challenge in terms of how fast you're going to go through equipment, protective equipment and how much you're going to have available to protect your healthcare workers. So rather than put those 15 people in one ward where you've also, from an engineering standpoint, made certain that that air is not going to escape from that ward to go into some other location. And now you don't have to doff and don. You can actually uh, congregate in the, that ward and do that. Uh, look at ways that which you can 
uh, reuse uh, protective equipment like N95s. Next week, I'll talk more about that. We have a series of papers being published on our website this week uh, by Lisa Brousseau, one of the real world's aerobiologist experts on the kind of protection that we need and how do we maintain that protection uh, through things like reusing N95s and what's the process for doing that. So I think that's the first thing. We owe it to those individuals to give them our best shot. The second thing that I think our hospitals need to do today is understand that um, we can give them some advance warning of what's going to happen by doing good public health and uh, trying to understand, oh, all the cases are starting to turn up. These are coming down the pike in the next few days. This is what's going to happen and, 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 and doing that. We have to recruit more people to come into these areas. Um, you know, we all recognize that intensivists who work in these areas, whether they're doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, whatever, they're special. They're very special. They are, in fact, special forces. When one of them becomes ill and now becomes a patient as opposed to a care provider, that's not just like losing any healthcare worker. You can't take any just doctor or nurse off the off floor or out of the community and make them intensivists overnight. So what we have to do is provide as much backup with as many trained people as possible. We also need to think very carefully about decisions we make that one-off end up becoming potential disasters. One, for example, that I hear over and over again is the recruitment of retired healthcare workers to work in these areas. Now, working directly with COVID patients, I think is potentially a big mistake because these are the very people with an inadequate protection are going to become cases and are the ones most likely to become severely ill and also die. Now they go from becoming a care provider again to someone requiring this care. So if we could use them, try to put them into clinical settings where they're not likely to encounter COVID patients and potentially use healthcare workers who are younger, who don't have underlying risk factors, who then could transfer into the COVID area. It's that kind of planning that we need to think about. And, and I think finally, we need to give them the resources they need. You know, this is a time where, you know, when we go to war, the Defense Department pretty much gets a, almost a, an open check. What do you need? And I think these hospitals are in a position right now, if there is something to get and they need to get it. Um, in most cases, they just won't be able to get it. No money in the world right now is going to buy more N95s than can be made. Nobody can get more uh, ventilators than can be made. So I think that it's one of those issues where we really have to um, support healthcare, knowing that we're always going to come up short and just make sure we take care of these people as much as we can and help take care of their families. I, I would love nothing more than to see communities organizing around caring for healthcare workers' families. That right now might be one of the kindest gifts any community could give its most important heroes. Let's turn to the international response right now. Um, what role do you see the WHO playing in this pandemic now that the virus is causing illness worldwide and, and each country is essentially uh, pursuing its own strategy? And, and and what do you think of their recent statement about the way SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted and their recommendations for respiratory protection in places like hospitals and long-term care facilities? Well, first of all, let me say I, I have the greatest respect for the institution of the WHO and the importance that it has to play in public health globally. Uh, I have a number of very dear friends and colleagues that work at the WHO. Uh, and uh, I, I can't say enough about how important it is to have a strong, 
leader-related uh, organization like the WHO. Having said that, I, I feel like the last several months have been one series of disappointments. Um, I think that I understand the intent of the WHO in maintaining that countries could contain this infection when, you know, frontline people such as myself and others saw that that wasn't going to happen. You know, uh, it, there's no A plus B plus C plus miracle here. That's why we, two months before the WHO declared it a pandemic, we said it was going to be. Now, that's not about naming rights or somehow you're smarter than us. It's not at all. But it was the difference in allowing countries to have to come to grips with, oh, my God, we got to get ready. This is going to happen. And I think that we actually set ourselves back globally by somehow coming down on that containment message over and over again. This still could be contained. This still could be contained. And I don't think the public and I know policymakers did not get that. And so by the time it was, this is a pandemic, the world was on fire. And I think it was far too late. So I didn't agree with their strategy, even though I have respect for many of those that were involved. I appreciate them as friends and colleagues. I think they were just wrong. Now on this issue around respiratory transmission, uh, this is a blind spot that, I mean, as one of my colleagues today said in the national media, this is irresponsible. And we have compelling data today about the aerosol vi uh, tr transmission of this virus. And we're not talking now about long distances. Aerosols are also present where droplets are in that three to six feet space. And they're also present beyond six feet where droplets are not. But the bottom line is if you're up close to a patient and you do not have N95 protection, uh, you are at risk. And how the WHO can conclude and I've looked at these data, and they're absolutely just not there. It is a position they have taken for years and was shared with me by one senior WHO official years ago. Well, we can't recommend uh, aerosol or airborne protection because most countries couldn't afford N95s. And I've always said, never compromise the science. What does the science tell you? Then we have to deal with the policy. So I think that uh, it is really harmful to give people the sense that this is not transmitted by aerosols. We have many examples of this. And I mean, I have talked to some of the best aerobiologists in the world. People are working on this, recognizing this is transmitted just like influenza in many ways. And influenza has been definitively shown to be transmitted by aerosols. It's, it's not a question. Those who hold to the old droplet uh, uh, issue are people who are just out of date. And if you're one of those people listening to this and you get really upset with me, all I ask you to do is go look at the data. The data are clear and compelling. It is transmitted via aerosol as well as droplets. I'm not saying droplets aren't important, but I'm also saying that the aerosols are there. And so I think that we are putting individuals in harm's way needlessly by saying, uh, that it's not an aerosol-related uh, event, as well as droplet. On top of that, I would say I agree that most people will never have access to an N95. They won't. And so why tell them that they need one? Well, because that's what the science tells us. And as soon as we get away from the science and we go to what is a convenient policy, then uh, who are we to stand up any time in the future when we're challenged on a science issue? So I just straight talk, just tell the truth. And I think right here, the data are clear and compelling. Uh, I can give them rhyme and verse on what data that does that supports this. Um, and uh, not only that, but 
when transmission is likely to occur even in asymptomatic individuals or pre-symptomatic individuals. And so I, I, I find that it's a challenge in the credibility of WHO. Finally, we need WHO to help many of the countries of the world obtain the needed resources they have. Right now, they're competing with the United States. They're competing with China. They're competing with so many countries around the world. And it, they're often then the last, if even any, of the countries to be able to get uh, the a, a very important uh, PPE, uh, you know, the testing reagents, et cetera. So we need them to do that. So, you know, I, I guess on that, I, I, I would just say that we need a strong WHO. Um, I don't think this has been their finest hour at all. And I'm sorry that that's been the case. Mike, are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Yes, I, I think, again, I just want to come back to the fact that we're going to get through this. We will get through this. This is going to get a lot harder, but we'll get through this. And we're going to get through it uh, as a community. We're going to get through it as families. We're going to get through it as professionals, as colleagues, and how we, again, reach out to people. And, you know, I, 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 you know I'm, a, I'm a scientist. I'm an epidemiologist by training. But I'm also a father. I'm a grandfather. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a co-worker. Uh, I'm an uncle. Um, you know, I, I, I realize that today people are afraid. They're very afraid. They're not panicked. They're afraid. They deserve for us to talk to them straight. They deserve for us to tell them what we know and don't know. Uh, and they will handle that. It's when we don't do that. It's when we gloss over the difficulties. It's when we are not truthful and we try to make things much better than they are. And I think that right now, the real leaders that are going to emerge in the current uh, uh, situation are going to be those that just tell the truth, tell people what it is we can do, what we can't do, why we can do what we can do, and keep holding people together. There is so, so much more that brings us together than divides us. It's us against this virus. It's not one country or another, not one religion or another. It's not any uh, skin color. It's not gender. It's us against the virus. And so if I leave each week on these, I just hope people believe that. And they look for the best in humans right now. And if you want to look for those, just go to every intensive care unit in this country right now that are caring for these patients. And I'll tell you, you'll see the best in what it means to be a human. So thank you very much. And I, I do look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm. And thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19 a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.